And today I want to begin a, a new series from the book of James. Now, I went back in my log uh, uh, and I said, when was the last time I did, uh, 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 went through the book of James? I've never preached through the book of James. I've been here, I'm in my 23rd year, I've never preached through the book of James. Now, I have taught through the book of James back in 2004. I taught through the book of James uh, here at Ridgecrest, but I've never preached through the book of James. The Lord put this on my heart some time ago. I've been looking forward to it for uh, a long time. And the reason is because the book of James is perhaps the most practical book in the scripture when it comes to the matter of Christian living. Now, <clears throat> you probably know there are three different Jameses mentioned in the New Testament. Two of them are apostles. There's James, who was the brother of John, and there is James the Lesser. These two were apostles. And then there's James, the author of this book, who was the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, the, the, the Christian history holds that, that he didn't become a believer until after the resurrection of Jesus. But when he did, he got a thorough dosis uh, of it, and he rose up to become the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And, um, and so uh, he became a, a mentor to many in the Christian world, and particularly to those he's writing to. Um, and it's such a good book for us, because James challenges us with what it means to live for God. It, this book is a convicting book, because James will deal with sin, and by the way, he deals with how to deal with sin, and he deals with unfaithfulness. It is a confrontational book because James confronts apathy among Christians. He calls out the arrogant, self-sufficient. It is a book that teaches us about temptation. It, he talks and addresses this whole matter of, of the misuse of our tongue and the ungodliness of the mouth. And he warns us against the perils of worldliness. It's a book about living your faith, really living your faith practically and consistently. Listen, today we hear a lot about social justice. This book is a book about social justice, but it's not about the kind of social justice, this kind of woke social Marxist uh, socialism that we hear about today. No, this is about real social justice that uh, is to be expressed by those who are saved and serve the needs of others in order to glorify God and proclaim Jesus Christ. It's a book about aligning our lives with the will of God. It's a book about acting and being doers of the Word of God. And among other things, it is a book about dealing with the difficulties and the trials of life. And to that end, uh, James begins his letter written to believers, he says, he addresses in, those first, in that first verse, who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And let me just tell you something of what that means. These, we call that the diaspora, the dispersion of the saints. It's chronicled in the book of Acts. And what it was is there arose, the Bible says, this great persecution upon the saints of God. The church, the church was uh, struggling as it came into existence and there was persecution uh, uh, upon it and uh, to try to snuff it out. It couldn't. It, what it did is it caused the Christians to disperse in order to survive. They fled to all kinds of different places in the Roman Empire. And guess what? That was all, listen, that was all a part of God's plan. God allowed the persecution to disperse the saints so the saints would take the gospel into the then known world. It was the birth of the modern missionary movement. 
That's what it was. And so uh, uh, James says, I'm, I'm writing this little letter here to the Christians living throughout the empire. And he addresses how to live for God in the midst of great sorrow, great difficulties, great persecutions. And so I want to read a few verses to you. Stand with me if you're physically able to do so from James chapter 1, beginning of verse 2, verse 2, 3, and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Father, would you help us to understand this practical message of how to make sense out of the difficulties, the trials, what to learn from what you're doing through them, and even why you allow them in our lives. Speak to us from your word today. Cause our ears and our spiritual eyes to be tuned in to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, you know, James, again, he starts off verse 1, a quick salutation, and then he jumps right into it. He wastes no time uh, addressing one of the biggest challenges that was facing these Christians who were, as I said, dispersed all over the Roman Empire. And what was the, one, this big challenge? What does he address in, immediately out of the gates? It is this whole matter of trials. It is the matter of difficulties and making sense out of these difficult kinds of seasons. And so he, he jumps right into this. Let's talk about the trials, the, the, the challenges that you are, are facing. You see, they were living in a, a very, very difficult time. Their faith was being attacked. Many of them were being punished. Others were enduring incredible hardships like poverty and deprivation because they were Christians, specifically because they were Christians. They suffered emotionally. They suffered relationally because they had loved ones taken from them and uh, often uh, uh, killed because of their faith. They were social outcasts. They were mocked. They were abandoned. And many were imprisoned and died. Times were hard. Times were difficult. And uh, James wanted to address that. He wanted to give them perspective. And he wanted to help them know how to navigate difficulties. You know, 2,000 years later, here we are, and things haven't changed much, have they? In fact, some things seem like they're becoming more like the first century than they have been, right? For us, with the assault on faith, the assault on your, your uh, relationship with God, and the, the, the fact that you're being told that you can't you can't speak about Christ. You can't uh, use His name in the workplace, in many uh, uh, places. And there is a sense of hostility that has developed toward those who are uh, followers of Christ. We spent some time down at the beach over the uh, last month, and um, our daughter was able to spend uh, several days with us during that time, but she couldn't stay the whole time. And so uh, when it was time for her to head back to Nashville, uh, I drove her about 70 miles to the airport, and it was a great time. We, we always enjoy that time, and we had a lot of daddy-daughter kinds of conversations. And somewhere in the course of our uh, drive to the airport, she said, Daddy, she said, do you think something, do you think something bad is coming? 
And do you think something bad is coming soon? And here was my answer to her. I said, yes, sweetheart. I think something unlike anything we have ever experienced in America is coming. I believe that. I don't say that to scare you because there is great encouragement in our relationship with God, but I do believe that. I believe we are already under the judgment of God. And I believe that if things do not change in terms of our approach, and listen, even with the people of God, what's ahead for us we're not prepared for. The Bible says that judgment begins with the house of God, begins with his own people. I told you a couple years ago, I believe God had given me a message that I really didn't want to carry. Now I believe that the message God has given me is one I must carry and must deliver. And I, I believe what's ahead for us we're not prepared for. I think we can be prepared. But I'm not sure we're prepared for the storm that's coming. Interestingly, just this week, I read a quote from Franklin Graham that went like this. He said, I warned the thousands who were attending the National Religious Broadcasters Convention this year that a storm is coming. And we'd better be ready because it appears as if all the demons in hell have been turned loose. Never before in America have we seen such open contempt for the Word of God. And when I say demons, I mean just that. I agree fully. Something is coming. Something that's unlike anything that we've ever experienced in America. And by the way, American Christians need to get over something. They need to get over some, this idea that God would never bring any judgment upon us because we're Americans or we're American Christians and because we've done so much good for the world. Don't you ever believe that? Some of the problems today for the believers is that we've grown apathetic. And we've just assumed that it's going to go on like it always has. And listen to this. I've heard believers say this. Well, you know, if America goes down, if America goes down, it basically collapses the world. Listen to me. I want to tell you something. We may be at the end of the American empire, not at the end of the world. You see, we, we have to be careful. We don't just assume, well, if America doesn't exist, the world just folds up and rolls away. Do you know there are great empires throughout history that collapse and the world didn't? We need to understand where we are. We need to understand that the season is a difficult season and is possibly going to become even more difficult. Something is coming. I fully believe it. Unlike anything we've ever experienced in America, things are coming, listen, that will try our faith and our faithfulness. Many are going to leave the faith. They're going to leave their confession of Christ, and it will be revealed that they never really had one. That's why why John wrote in his little letter, he said, they went out from us because they were never really one of us. And we're going to see that. Jesus asked this question, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? You see, many are going to depart. I read... I read an article in the Wall Street Journal. I sent it to our staff uh, the other morning. 
And the article was a study on, on people returning to church. And we all know what COVID did about that and all that sort of thing. But it surprised me when I read it. It was based on some pretty good research, a Barna Research Institute, one of those, a leading Christian evangelical pollster. And it might surprise you because you, you might say, well, I, I, we're here, so our, our crowd came back. But listen to this. It wasn't the young people. We might say those young people, they just didn't go back to church. It's not the young people that didn't return. And then you might say the millennials. That's our, you know, that's our whipping post for years. Oh, blame it on the millennials. Those millennials. Yeah. It's not the millennials that didn't return. I'm a baby boomer. It's not us. We, we, all, we, we came back pretty much. The numbers are down for all groups, but, but as they go. The group that didn't return in the largest numbers was the Gen X group. You know who that is? That's the 40 to 55-year-old category. Is the largest demographic with the least amount of return. And, and they didn't not return because they were mad. What the article said, the common, the common idea seemed to be, well, we just discovered through all this, we didn't really need it as much as we thought we did. I believe, by the way, something is coming that's going to cause people of faith to have to say, my faith is the only thing that's going to carry me, and cause those who don't have it to say, hmm, I don't think I need that. I don't think I need that. A season of difficulty. How do I know these things are coming? Well, first, I know history. And uh, history itself testifies to this. Listen, no nation, not one, has ever survived open borders. That's history. No nation has ever affirmed sexual perversity and survived. No nation has ever compromised its foundational laws in order to pacify fringe cultural ideas and survived. And no nation has ever overspent its economic resources and survived. Now you want to examine it? Go study it. Go, go study the collapse of the greatest empires in history. So I, I know history. Second, society testifies to it. Would you agree with this statement? There is a rapid decline in common sense in this culture. One man said some years ago, he said, common sense has become a superpower. I think he's right. The rapid decline of common sense, the redefining of definitions and terminology. Woe, Isaiah said, to those who call evil good and good evil. And the increasing restriction on free speech. Let me give you just one example. Just this past week, a group of Christian young people were arrested in a public park, handcuffed in a public park in Wisconsin for reading the scriptures out loud 
By the way, they were not in violation of any state law or constitutional law. They were arrested because they were reading Scripture on a sidewalk at what was termed a Pride in the Park event. These young people were not... You, you, go, you pull up a clip of it. They were not trying to antagonize the other meeting. They were not calling names. They were not inciting any kind of violence. They were simply reading Scripture. And they were arrested. Society, you see, is testifying to what's coming. And then third, I know this is coming because most important of all, Scripture testifies to it. History does. Society does. But Scripture does. And God has been warning us for years with increasingly significant indicators that He's trying to get our attention. Just like He did with Israel. Go read Jeremiah or Isaiah, and God was constantly for a period of time warning them, and He would get more intense in the warnings that He brought to them, trying to get their attention. And you see, you can't defy God's Word forever without destructive consequences. Now, some of you are already thinking, Pastor, go back on sabbatical. <laughs> Thank you, I am. But things, things are coming, listen, that are going to try your soul. And the real question is, when they come, or when we face them, will you be revealed as the real deal for God? Or will you be like those, the Bible says, there were many near Jesus, and He spoke some hard truth to them, and it says they... They departed and followed him more. And you know what he, the Bible calls them? Disciples. It said many of his disciples departed and followed him no more. We have to understand there are things coming that are going to try us. Now, you say, well, those are big national corporate kinds of trials. And yes, they are. But they're also the daily kinds of individual trials, the things that are more personal. But in our personal life, they're every bit as powerful as the big stuff we may think about and talk about. They're just as powerful. And some of you are sitting here and some of you watching on television or live stream, you're going through a trial right now and that trial is powerful in its effect on your, your soul. It's rocking you. And by the way, in just a couple of weeks, uh, I'm going to preach a message on when your faith is rocked. Have you ever had your faith rocked? When your faith is rocked. I have. Alice and I were talking Friday night. We went out to eat and we're talking about this and we talked about a particular time and I said, are you okay if I share that? She said, I'm fine with that. I said, I'm going to share that in that message. When your faith is rocked, what do you do? So this morning what I want to talk with you about is the reason for difficult seasons. And I want you all to listen real fast. I told you we'd get out of here sometime this afternoon. But if you're going through a trial, and if you're not, you know, I've told you this before, if you're not going through one now, you will, hang on, you, you'll get there, you know? Um, but what do you do if, they, if that's where you are right now? And what do you do, and how do you fortify yourself spiritually? 
for the trials that will come and for the larger things that are going to try your faith. And so as we think about that, I, I want to begin by giving you four things that I think everyone should know about trials. Now, this isn't new. I've given you these four things before, and this is just kind of to, 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 to jumpstart it, but there are four things, and anytime you talk about trials, you ought to talk about these things. There are four things that everybody ought to know about, about trials. So let me give them to you. Number one, trials are a test of dedication. You see, trials reveal who we are. They, they show who we are. Trials are a test of, of, of dedication. Again, that's why Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, there, there be that, and there will. There will be that remnant of those who have stayed faithful. There will be that remnant of those who have kept the faith and finished the course. But trials reveal our devotion. They, they are a test of our dedication. Are we dedicated? And well, you know the story of Abraham. I won't go back through that, but when he was tested, the Bible said, to, and he was told to take his son uh, Isaac and offer him on the altar, it was a test. It was a test. What was it a test of? Dedication. It was a test of dedication. Number two, trials had their limitations. Now, this is the good news. This is good news for us, and, and that is, and that, is that, that trials don't last forever. Aren't you glad for that? I mean, you get to come up and get a... Get a gulp of air every once in a while before you go back under. Trials don't last forever. They, trials have their limitations. I think about Job. Job chapter 23 and verse 10 says, But he, God, knows the way I take, and when God has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And he did, but you know that journey. But what he was saying is, he knows the way that I take, and this does have an ending, and, uh, the, and there's good on the, the back side of it. Trials have their limitations. Number three, trials bring revelations. They teach us. They, we, we should learn from our trials. Uh, God is using them to develop us. Uh, to, and so he, he, he teaches, he instructs, he brings revelations to us. Zechariah, the prophet said, refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested they will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they're my people, and they will say, the Lord's my God. Trials that test us, refine us, and they bring revelations to us. They, they equip us so that we can stand. You know, you don't, you don't run a marathon. You don't just get up one day and say, I want to run a marathon, do you? I mean, you have to put time and effort in you have to learn how to, to do it. You have to build up to all of that. Well, that's what trials do. They, they, we're in a broken world. In a broken world, we're living with the consequences of the brokenness, and the brokenness brings upon us things that, frankly, we'd rather we didn't have to deal with. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's emotional. You, whatever the category, it brings, it thrusts these things upon And guess what? In this broken world, God often says, now, I'm going to allow that because I'm going to use that. And so it, it teaches us so that the next time a trial comes, we're more equipped. And then fourth, tri uh, trials require faithful participation. Now listen, since they are going to come in your life, in my life, the wise thing to do is make the most out of them by cooperating fully with God. So you can't stop them. They are part of the brokenness that we live in. And so the best thing you can do is say, okay, God, what I need to learn, because I want to learn it as fast as I can. 
uh, fully cooperate with him. And that really is the message of James, particularly in verse 2. So how can you get the most from your trials? Well, let me give you three things, okay? How do you get the most from your trials? First of all, James deals with the reckoning of your trials, Verse 2, look at that, count, the word count. That's all I want you to look at It's just the word count. Uh, that word can be translated reckon. It can be can't translate. Some translations say consider. Some of you have that in your translate, consider. the, the so, uh, uh, Count, reckon. It is actually like a banking term. And here's what he's saying, take stock of what's going on. And by the way, this is a, a, a verb of contemplation, not emotion. Very important to understand that because, by the way, it's an imperative. It's a command. So he's saying, here's a command. Reckon or count all the trials that come into your life with joy. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But the word count is the important word because it's not an emotion. It is a a, a verb of thought. It is a verb of contemplation. Uh, It is a, a command that we are to obey. So what is it? What does it mean to count or to reckon your trials? What's that all about? Well, it means that you think through what's going on. You know, the problem with trials sometimes is they cause us to kind of lose our mind, don't they? And we stop thinking properly or rightly. And this is what James is saying. When you're undergoing a trial, be careful that your mind doesn't take you someplace that you lose control of what's going on Uh, in the trial. But he's saying, think through what is uh, happening. What is going on right now? It's like putting your trial in a frame in order to see it properly. Now, here's what you fill in on that black. To do this, perspective is essential. All right? So you got to get the right perspective. It's like putting it in a frame. I, I I bet you're like us. We have all kinds of pictures framed. All kinds of pictures framed. I have all kinds in in my office. Most of them now are the grandsons. But we have have things framed all over our house. In fact, you start running out of space to set your frames, don't you? Why do we frame things? We frame it to get perspective. You frame it so you you can focus on that. You can see that for what it is. Well, think about your trials. Your trials are an opportunity for you to frame them in light of what God is doing. I bet you've heard this line before. These are the times that try men's souls. You know who uttered that? It was Thomas Paine writing in the Penn Journal. Thomas Paine was one of the founding fathers and he, he penned that because, he penned that, by the way, uh, during the Revolutionary War when there was a, a crisis uh, going on, a severe crisis, and you had men leaving who had signed up, and he called them summertime soldiers and sunshine patriots. And he elaborated another place on that. What he meant by that is that these were guys that, at the outset of the Revolutionary War, they were enlisting soldiers, and, and they would give them a uniform and a gun, and they would march in parades. None of them really ever thought they'd have to fight. But the, everybody loves the uniform. And they'd give them a uniform, 
And he called them, and they'd get to, to march in the parade, and so he called them summertime soldiers. Sunshine patriots. It's good as long as people were applauding them and they were walking in the parade. But when it came time for battle, they didn't realize the magnitude of the battle, and they deserved, many of them deserted. And uh, in this crucial time, writing in a series of pamphlets called The American Crisis, Thomas Paine uttered those famous words, These are the times that try men's souls. He really was writing this, but George Washington read it and said, It has to be distributed. With, uh, throughout the army. But he goes on in the next few lines and adds this, the summer soldier, the sunshine patriot that I mentioned, will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands, he that stands it now, deserves the love and the thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. And heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. Well, why did he write all those words? It was for inspiration, most certainly, for motivation, for sure. But he was writing to give perspective to the, the, those who were being faithful, he was giving them perspective to, to bring meaning to their trial. Here's why you're doing what you're doing. Here's why you, you stand fast. Here's why you go through the midst of the trial, the midst of the, the storm that howls in your life. Get perspective. Perspective's essential. And likewise, our perspective must be shaped by the Word of God and our trust in what God has said and what God has promised. That's what shapes our perspective. And so when the trial comes, we frame it. We frame it in the light. We frame it in the light of what God has said. And so we, we look eternally. Does that make sense? So we don't just see the moment. This Paul called it momentary light affliction. It never feels light and momentary but it is. This momentary light affliction, Paul says, is endured. Why? Because we're, we're, we framed it. We're counting. We've reckoned it against what we know to be true, that this isn't. these things are passing away. The book of Hebrews is, comes just before James. Look over at, verse, at chapter 11 of Hebrews. Verse 13, look what it says. These all died, some great men and women of faith. And by the way, it goes on later in the chapter to talk about the trials and the sufferings and the persecutions of those who, who in many cases, gave their lives for their faith. But he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Did you get that? Not having received the things promised. I mean, they didn't receive all the promises in this life, but he goes on to say, but, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were merely strangers and exiles on the earth. What, what, what does that mean? It means this. They, didn't get, they lived by the promises of God. That's perspective. That's reckoning. That's counting what's ahead. That's eternal perspective. They lived by that, but even though they didn't receive all the promises right now, 
but they were looking beyond right now. Now, if you want to know how to, how, how to navigate the difficult seas in your life, look beyond right now. This isn't going to last. Look beyond now. Learn to frame or consider or count or reckon your trials in light of God's Word, God's promises, and listen, God's love and God's purpose. Who can separate us from the love of God? I want to tell you something. If you're going through something right now, go read, go read Romans 8 especially the last portion of Romans 8, when he talks about all the things that we endure in life, and then he says, but who shall separate us from the love of God? None of these things can separate us from the love of God. God God has won, and we win because of God and what Jesus Christ has done. And you cannot, I don't care what you go through, I don't care what the storm is that you're facing or you're dealing with, listen, know this, that God loves you and God is working all things according to the purpose of His will. So learn to frame and consider your trial. Number two, what is the response to your trial? All right, let's stay right where we were. He said, count, that's that's the word we just looked at, but then let's stay on that idea. Count it all joy. This continues the command to count or to reckon or to consider, and it's about a choice that we make. It's, uh, it's, It's talking about the command being taken to a whole new level. Count it all joy. And by the way, did you notice when he says, he says, when you meet various kinds of trials, he didn't say if you meet various kinds of trials. He says when you meet them, when you face them, you're going to face them. As I said, it's a fact. He didn't say when you meet some trials either. Did you notice that? He said when you meet various trials, like a multicolored uh, a spectrum of trials. In other words, what he was saying to us and to them is, uh, uh, any trial you meet, count it, reckon it, all pure joy. You see, not only are we framing our trials with a, a heavenly perspective because we know what God has said and we know that God is in control, but we are making a choice to be joyful in the face of our difficulties. So, put on your outline there joy is a choice it's commanded here now don't be confused the idea here listen it is a state of being and not an emotion i told you the word count is a verb of thought and contemplation not emotion well neither is joy joy is referring to a state of existence a state of being it is, not a, it is not an emotion. And uh, it, it's a command. And, and by the way, it's not a command to smile through your suffering and pain. It, it's not a command to fake it. You know, I'm just going to fake it. Oh, I'm so happy. I'm taking some of the hardest blows in my life. I'm just so happy. That's not at all. You know, there's a, there is a tremendous difference between happiness and joy. I'm all for happiness. Everybody, anybody else? Can I get an amen? I'm for happiness. Amen. I'm for happiness. <laughs> Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm for pursuing happiness. Just want to get that on the register. But that's not what he's talking about. Because happiness is circumstantial, isn't it? 
Because when things are well, you, you find it easier to be happy, right? Joy is a state of being. Joy, the Bible speaks about, is something internal. And what he's talking about here is it is a settled contentment. So Paul says, so whatever the, the may be, and he gives a list of things, he says, I have learned to be content. It's the idea I'm at peace with whatever I deal with or whatever I face. It is a settled kind of contentment. Isn't that good? So when he says, count it all joy, he's not saying, what's your worst trial that you're going through? Now, get happy, do a dance, do a jig, let everybody know that this is the most wonderful thing you've ever That's not at all what he's saying. But he's saying you can exist in a, a, a place where you're at peace in the midst of storm. Isaiah 26.3 God will keep in perfect peace those whose mind is stayed on Him. God will give you a peace, Paul said, that passes all understanding. You know what Spurgeon said about joy? He said there is a marvelous medicinal power in joy. Most medicines are distasteful. But this, which is the best of all medicines, is sweet to taste and comforting to the heart. The blessed joy is very contagious. Holy joy will oil the wheels of your life's machinery. Holy joy will strengthen you for your daily labor. That's why Paul, in, in prison, he could write to the Philippians. He's in prison. I, I've been in what they believe, at least were one of the prison cells in Rome that Paul was in, and I couldn't even stand. I'm too tall to stand completely up. Probably a little 10 by 8 concrete bunkers, what we would call it, with a little, a little light in the side up at the top for air to come and go, and a little hole in the ground. I'll let you figure out what that's for. And Paul was like that. And do you know from the Roman judge, do you know what he wrote? He wrote these words to the Philippian Christians. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You see, you have to be in a place where you can write a word like that when you're in a little concrete cell, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Rejoy. I think there's some Christians that need to have their joy renewed because they've been chasing happiness instead of finding peace and joy in the Lord. And so, are you facing a trial, a test, a difficulty? Choose joy in the Lord and rejoice. And again, I say to you, rejoice. Last, the third thing that I give you this morning that James speaks of is the result of your trials. Verses 3 and 4, the result of your trials there, he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now here's what I want you to put on that next slide. Steadfastness is a product. Steadfastness is a product. And the point here is clear. God uses your trials to cultivate your faithfulness, to cultivate your dependence on Him. And that's why you can choose joy. Because the trial that you're going through means that God is up to something in your life. It means that God has 
a purpose for your life. It means that God is equipping you to go the distance and to finish the race and to be able to say at the end, like Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I have kept the faith, I have finished the course. So God uses trials to produce this product. This product is steadfastness. This product God, uh, God produces in your life results in trust and faith. He's brought me through in the past. He'll bring me through in the future. I will set my mind on Him. I will set my eyes on things above. I will trust Him even when I don't understand what's going on around. That's the hardest time. I mean, I, I mean, when you don't really... And have you ever noticed most times when the trial, at the onset of some trial or test in your life, you don't fully understand what's going on. But here's what I can do. I can, I can develop steadfastness through the trials that I've come through successfully in the past, they fortify my soul so I know, I don't know what's going on right now, I don't know what God is doing right now, but I know this, I was there one time and God brought me through, and I was there one time and God brought me through I was there one time and God brought me tr- uh, through I, I have learned to trust in God, I've learned to be steadfast, amen? It'll build trust, but it builds this stamina, this steadfastness. Some translations even say endurance. Maybe yours does, endurance. Some even use the idea of perseverance. It helps me persevere. All of those are good and accurate. The point is that the product of steadfastness is this kind of stamina. And so God uses the trials to build stamina, endurance, like a spiritual athlete. I don't know, did y'all see... This past week, did y'all see the video clip? It went viral of a woman from Somalia who competed in the, the International University Sports Federation Summer World University Games. Athletes from all over the world, world-class athletes. Huge stuff, big stuff happened in China. Nasro Abukar Ali was her name. She competed in the first round of the women's 100-meter race there. This is the first round to see if you can qualify to go on to subsequent rounds. You're racing against world-class sprinters, the best in the world at 100 meters. The clip, you can go watch it. She starts out very sluggishly, out of the blocks, just like the others do, but they burst forward. She just kind of slowly starts out, and, and then she quickly begins to fade behind the entire pack of these world-class runners before finally jogging toward the finish line and then skipping across. Actually happened. She finished 20, <laughs> 21.81 seconds she ran the 100 meters in. Some of you could walk it faster than that. She was more than eight seconds slower than the slowest runner in the main field. And she was more than ten seconds behind the winner of the heat. 
By the way, her country was called into question for putting her in the race. You see, there was nepotism going on. There was a family member in the head of the Somali government uh, who she wanted her, her family member to run or compete in the games, and so she put a family member in there. But this woman who ran had never trained before. She literally, they said, just showed up representing her country and got in the blocks to run. No training whatsoever. We say, how absurd. And their country is now being, being I think there, uh, some, some infractions are being imposed against their country for even doing that sort of thing and probably should be. But this woman wasn't trained. She couldn't run in that kind of race. She hadn't been trained to run in that kind of race. And what she did is she looked like an absolute failure. You know why? Because she was an absolute failure. Now give her credit. She skipped across the finish line. <laughs> This is fun. Do you understand our trials are for our training? So that we can endure this race, run it steadfastly until we cross the finish line. Many of you know the name John Newton. Y'all know the name John Newton? You know it because he is the author of the great hymn of our faith, Amazing Grace. He came out, he was a slave trader, and God saved him gloriously, and what a remarkable individual he became after he, uh, he got saved and fought against slavery, by the way, with, with um, some other leaders, Wilberforce in England. But many of you know him because you at least know that name because of the great hymn, Amazing Grace. But did you know it was his goal to write one hymn? He had hundreds of hymns. And it was his goal to write one hymn a week. And I came across one. I'd, I'd never heard this hymn before, but I came across one in July that he had written. And, and uh, frankly, it wouldn't be one of my favorites. And we probably don't sing it because of the, because of the nature of it. But I'm going to share it with you. I'm not going to sing it to you. I'm going to share it with you. And everybody said? Amen. Here's how it goes. It says, I ask, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. T'was He who taught me thus to pray, and He, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once He'd answer my request and by His love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed. Blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou presume, uh, pursue thy worm to death? "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied, "'I answered your prayer for grace and faith. "'These inward trials I employ "'from self 
and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may seek your all in me. God has a reason for your difficult season. You get it? He loves you so much that He uses the trials. He uses the trials to draw you closer to Him, to fix your eyes and your faith totally on Him. Father, thank You. When we don't tell You, thank You for the trials. We don't want them. And Father, we'd prefer to avoid them. But when they come, and they do, help us to reckon and count. Father, help us understand the reason. And then, Lord, help us to walk steadfastly so that we may be pleasing to you and that we might know you like never before. Father, for those in this place today that do not know you, may this be that day that they turn their eyes and their hearts to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning for our invitation? I'll be here at the front. Staff members are going to be on the aisles. The invitation is simple. If you're not sure you know Jesus, why don't you come today and say, I'd like to meet him. We'll help you with that. We'll take it from there. If you're watching by live stream or television, you'll see information on your screen. that will kind of instruct you on what you can do, and we'll love to help you into the kingdom of God. If you're here this morning and say, I've already done that, but I need a church home or church family, why don't you slip out and come say, Pastor, I'd like to join Ridgecrest. We'd love to have you. You can do it in a number of ways. You can stop by our Welcome Center, and there will be staff there and just say, hey, I'd like to become a part of Ridgecrest. But I want to invite you to come publicly and say, I'd like to become a part of this family. Maybe... Maybe there's somebody you know that's going through a trial and they need prayer. Prayer works, amen? amen? That's what this altar's for. Come use it. Would you come use it today? Maybe you're praying for them. Maybe it's you. You come and kneel. Seek the Lord. Lay it before Him. Whatever it may be. It's very important. We're going to be gone here real soon. So listen carefully. What's He saying? Don't walk out and say, you know what I should have done. I, next time I will, because the next time you get here, guess what? The devil might say, nah, you just, got, you just got a little worked up. Today's the day. Don't miss the moment. 